Marianne Singleton was 25 years old when she saw San Francisco for the first time. She came to the city alone for an eight-day vacation. On the fifth night, she drank three Irish coffees at the Buena Vista, realized that her mood ring was blue, and decided to phone her mother in Cleveland. Hi, Mom. It's me. Oh, darling, your daddy and I were just talking about you. There was this crazy man on Macmillan and Wife who was strangling all these secretaries, and I just couldn't help thinking, Mom, I know, just crazy old mom wearing herself sick over nothing, but you never can tell about those things. Look at that poor Patty Hurst locked up in that closet with all those awful, Mom, long distance. Oh, yes, you must be having a grand time. God, you won't believe it. The people here are so friendly, I feel like I've... Have you been to the top of the mark like I told you? Not yet. Well, don't you dare miss that. You know, your daddy took me there when he got back from the South Pacific. I remember he slipped the band leader five dollars so he could dance to Moonlight Serenade, and I spilled Tom Collins all over his beautiful white navy. Mom, I want you to do me a favor. Of course, darling. Just listen to me. Oh, before I forget it, I ran into Mr. Lassiter yesterday at the Ridgemont Mall, and he said the office is just falling apart with you gone. They don't get many good secretaries at Lassiter Fertilizer. Mom, that's sort of why I called. Yes, darling? I want you to call Mr. Lassiter and tell him I won't be in on Monday morning. Oh, Marianne, I'm not sure you should ask for an extension on your vacation. It's not an extension, Mom. Well, then why? I'm not coming home, Mom. You're shelf for my talking sophisticated topics all the time. You're shelf for my kick back, relax, crack a book on wine at your shelf for my your shelf or my Hello. And welcome to Your Shelf. Or mine. I'm Becky Standle, Youth Services Librarian at the Longview Public Library. I'm Austin Brigden, Administrative Assistant at the Longview Public Library. Today, for Pride Month in June, we are talking about the um, life and work of Armistead Moppet. Yes, I've been very excited. First, um, some library news. Sure. I think you've got the biggest news of the moment, Becky. Well, I don't know. It might be tied. <laughs> I think first I'll say that our new library director, Jacob Cole, started at the beginning of the month. And it's just been two weeks so far. So he's, he's, he's uh, being, settling in. Yeah. I was going to say inun- in, in, inundated he's with being in- all of our excitement. <laughs> he's being inundated with yeah, information and excitement. So that's been exciting. And then, of course, June means summer reading. We're recording this on June 17th. Summer reading started on the 15th, and it's been very busy, very fun. Although I will say it doesn't quite feel like summer. Um, We had to cancel our outdoor story time, our first one we had scheduled today, because it was pouring down rain and cold. Um, but hopefully next week we'll get some sunshine and things will be more summery. That's the rumor. That's mm-hmm. the rumor. I guess it's still not technically summer yet. Well, it it sure doesn't seem like it. I think those are the two biggest pieces mm-hmm. of library news we've got. Yeah. So just a quick thing. Summer reading goes through August 13th this year. 
It is for everybody, babies, kids, teens, adults. You log on to our Beanstack site at longviewlibrary.beanstack.org, where we are also doing our Your Shelf Reading Challenge. Um, sign up for the program that goes with your age group and set a daily reading goal for the summer with the first activity badge and then just start logging your days of reading to earn prizes. You get a prize just for signing up. You just come in and pick it up. And then at 10 days, 20 days, and 30 days to finish, we also have some bonus weeks with additional prizes later in the summer too. Also, we've got tons of cool events going on. So um, check out our Facebook page, our library website, longviewlibrary.org, and get all all the scoops. Yeah. So without further ado, let's turn to Armistead Maupin. Now this is, you know, those of you who've been listening have noticed that um, we sort of toggle somewhat between authors that Becky has more familiarity with and ones that I have more familiarity with. Occasionally, maybe ones that neither of us have a lot of familiarity with, but mostly it's one or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and this Or is, next month, I think we'll have one where we're both very familiar with. Yes, that's also true. Um, and this was one more that I brought to the to the table. I, I really, really love Armistead Maupin. Um and I'll start out, I think, by saying my Armistead Maupin origin story, which um, was, I was trying to remember it. You got into I, it with the pan- in 2020. Well, so you know how when you're like on Netflix and then there'll be like things that keep getting like um, pushed to you at the top of your feet or whatever mm-hmm. and you ignore them studiously until finally you're like, oh, watch it. Um, I feel like the the Tales of the City miniseries from PBS in the early 90s showed up on Netflix. And I can't remember if I watched the miniseries first or if I watched, there's a documentary, uh, kind of a similar time period that had popped up on Canopy. Shout out to Canopy. It's no longer on Canopy. Don't look for it there. Uh, <laughs> called The Untold Tales of Armistead Maupin. I, I interacted with those two things at around the same time. Um, I think it was the documentary first. And I was like, oh, and then that made me interested in watching Tales of the City. And then I went and I read the book. Um, I read Tales of the City, physical book. Um, I just remember it was it was buoyant. I just remember reading it with such pleasure. You know, there's, there's those novels you get into where you just can't wait to get back to them. It's like candy. And uh, that was me. And then I actually listened to, I think, another one and a half books on audiobook. And I feel real duped. I feel real <laughs> deceived because I realized in revisiting those that they were abridged versions of audio, which is too bad because his voice, his reading voice is just wonderful Southern drawl. Um, so this time I reread Tales of the City and then I read most of the second volume, More Tales of the City, which I had apparently listened to an abridged version of. But I was just enchanted by the characters. Um, Mouse Tolliver, one of the main characters, is probably one of my favorite characters in literature, right up there with Doc from Cannery Row. So that's my that's my little spiel. Well, uh, for me, I this is my first time reading anything by Armistead Maupin, and actually, I don't think I had even really heard of Tales of the City until um, several years ago. Uh, PBS did that Great American Reads or Great American Books program. And Elizabeth and I talked about that on the podcast a few years ago when it was happening. 
And that was one of the books on the list. And I was like, oh, I'm not familiar with this um, series. And then when Austin was getting into it, he just had to talk about how great this, this books were that he was reading. So I have just finished Tales of the City, the first Just book. finished. And um, I think I'm going to have to keep reading it because there was like all these things I thought would be resolved by the end of the first <laughs> book and they are not. And then we did watch that documentary a few days ago mm. and a few episodes of the first season of Tales of the City, the show, which I would like to finish too. I didn't yeah. want to, it follows the book so closely that it's like, you're like, okay, stop this episode because that's where I am in the book and I don't want to get right. ahead. I didn't, it was interesting to rewatch it at the same time that I was rereading Tales of the City because the first time I didn't do them at the same time because it's a very, very faithful um, adaptation. And so you're like, it's kind of a weird experience to read the book at the same time. Um, but the acting is great. One thing I think right off the bat you need to say about Armistead Maupin and I knew Armistead Maupin's name, I think, before I knew anything about him, is that at least the initial books, um, one through six maybe, were written first as serials in the um, San Francisco Chronicle. He's the Dickens of San Francisco, um, not, a, not a form that people were as familiar, you know, mm -hmm. but a form that was very big back in Dickens' time. Um, so these came out as serials. Um, people would read them. They came out daily, five days a week, I think, in the Chronicle from 1976 or 8 to 1989. Um, and then they were made into, you know, compiled into novels. Um, after that, after a distance of some years, Armistead Maupin wrote three more novels, not as a serial, not initially as a serial. And actually, those shift to first-person novels. Oh. Um, yeah, so he did that. He's also written, he wrote two standalone novels, mm -hmm. The Night Listener, which was, I would still like to read, which was made into a film with Robin Williams mm -hmm. and uh, Maybe the Moon. And then he, his most recent work is a memoir called Logical Family. And I did read that. And it is a real pleasure, like most of his writing. All of his writing that I've read. <clears throat> I really enjoyed it. And I... Um... And I guess not necessarily had the same kind of reading experience where it was just like turning pages, but always nice to like pick it up and read a couple chapters or short. And I assume that each chapter is like a day's column, but I don't know. I don't really know that either. I was trying to figure that out because like, so they, they do read, I think you have, you have time and you're mm -hmm. not, you know, distracted being like the youth services librarian at the Longview public library. They're very propulsive because they are these short little chapters and they move between viewpoints. But so in each book, he has like these, um, there's a heading and then there's sometimes couple paragraphs set off by themselves. I'm never sure, I, but I think each one is a day. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's cool because you, like I said, there's like a bunch of stuff I still wanna know that you don't get to know by the end of the first book. So there's little like character things or plot things that kind of carry you through too. But at the same time, like each section is its own thing. And really kid, like if you just read it, you know, could stand alone as like an interesting little piece of writing. And it's like, you know, like a, a sitcom basically. You know, you have these characters and like the more 
you know, chapters that you read, the more you get to know them and you learn their little quirks and like the, the recurring gags and, and all yeah. of that. But you can also kind of pop in and they're just really like authentically written characters and nothing is ever really spelled out about anybody. So you have to read to learn about them. Yeah, yeah. I'm fascinated. And especially if you watch the documentary and kind of hear him talk about his process with the with the the writing of these novels because he didn't like especially early on I don't he didn't plot them out <laughs> this is sort of like emerge these plots emerge as he's living with these characters and sometimes you're just like wow that really worked out and he talks about that in the documentary like thinking like sometimes oh thank goodness to my former self uh, that I made that move but um, they're funny yeah. they're very fun like laugh out loud funny like I remember reading Tales of the City the first time and just uh, laying on my bed, reading it, and just laughing. But they, it can turn so fast. Oh, there's a we lot. Like, oh, listen to this; it's hilarious. And I was like, oh no, <laughs> right? What? You no, know, they and they work on a number of levels. Because I was thinking about how. So when these were written, especially the first ones, they were like satire. They were like they were like a portrait of the times that were happening right then in the city where they were happening, right? And it was a way, he talks about that. He had been a reporter. It was a way to talk about things, I think, more openly, um, particularly like the LGBTQ culture. Mm -hmm. Or um, like hookup culture, too. Hookup culture, 70s culture. Yeah, like people wouldn't like have interviewed him to talk about them. No, and so, and it made him freer. But, you know, obviously some of, a lot of it's grounded in that atmosphere of that moment in San Francisco and in the country. But it's so funny because now they read, they're like period pieces, which is which is interesting in a, yeah. in and of itself. In a way, it reads very contemporary, though, in that like they're never like explaining. Oh no, no, it reads as con I was gonna say it. It like they work on a number of levels. So like now it was written as a current a contemporary piece, but now it's a very atmospheric portrait of that moment. And you, yes, you feel very in that moment because they're not explaining all the time. It's and they're speaking very much in the language of that moment. Um, but they, I just think they also work on a lot of levels because they're like like the best satire, I guess, because they're they're funny and there's a buoyancy to them. But they're also serious, and you become very seriously um, involved with these characters. And and I think like uh, you know like other writers we've talked about like Jason Reynolds like some of these writers there's a deceptive simplicity mm -hmm. to what Maupin is doing, but man can he end a paragraph? <laughs> He's... I was thinking too how much there's like kind of between the lines, like are we doing spoilers for this first book at least? Oh sure yeah, and I think we should set up a little like who the key mm -hmm. characters are. Anyway, there's kind of like a few deaths at the end of the first book. And he never like comes out and said, you know, you're just like, oh, that you. Right. It's very clever. As you heard earlier, Marianne Singleton. Mm -hmm. So she's sort of, especially starts out as the protagonist. She's like the, per the, the catalyst. Yeah, the catalyst. For she's the, the catalyst. She's the, you know, they, there's some quote somewhere about the two kinds of, she's the stranger who comes to town. Someone goes on a journey or a stranger comes to town. Mm -hmm. Those are like the. Um, she comes to town. She's real green. She just came from Cleveland for vacation, and she's swept up in the city and decides to stay. And she finds a place to live at 28 Barbary Lane, which is this magical, not literally, it's not a, you know, magical realism or anything, but like enchanting place on Russian Hill in San Francisco 
that I think has become sort of a, a safe place for a lot of readers, a sort of enchanted place for a lot of readers. Yeah, I love it when there's an address in a book that like you really just know. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I feel like people say 28 Barbary Lane mm -hmm. and it conjures up this feeling. Yeah. And so she moves in and there's a cast of characters who are occupants, um, Brian Hawkins, mm -hmm. the straight guy, uh, Mona Ramsey. Um, I don't know. You know how to describe Mona? Mona is uh, She's kind a of like a new age. Free, yeah, free spirit, new agey. But also like she's like an advertising um, yeah. person. She has like a high powered job. The other thing Maupin does too is like you're hearing about all those characters and then he'll bring them together in surprising ways. Mm -hmm. He really paints a portrait of like the interconnectedness mm -hmm. of the community, which I think people who've lived in big cities know that there'll be like these villages within these metropolises that are like very tight despite mm -hmm. how big the place is. And he always does these kind of like cute, clever like reveals of who those people are. And like in the first episode of the show, he's kind of able to do one of those when uh, Edgar meets Anna Madrigal, where it's like he's talking to a woman and then like it kind of eventually pans to her face and you're like, oh. Right. Um, yeah. But much easier to do in like a book than. Oh than a, yeah. yeah, he has a lot more room to play mm -hmm. with that kind of stuff. So there's Marianne, there's, there's Brian, there's Mona. There's the landlady, who is one of the other biggest characters, Anna Madrigal, who's this sort of delightful, eccentric woman. Um, and She's always like in a caftan. <laughs> she's always in a caftan <laughs> or a kimono. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's Edgar Hal Halcyon, who's like an executive. He's actually the executive at the place where Marianne is a secretary and Mona is uh, like the creative and an adver it's an advertising agency. And, and Their big client is... Um, adorable pantyhose. <laughs> I think one of the most moving relationships in the book, this first book and in the show, is the relationship between Edgar Halcyon and um, Anna Madrigal. Edgar is dying. He's, he's got renal failure. And he's sort of coming to grips with that, but not telling his family. He lives a very, like, buttoned-up, society pages kind of life. And he meets Anna Madrigal in a park, and they embark on this affair that is transformational for him, I think, in his last days and, and a big thing for her. And it's just such a moving. She really brings out the boy mm -hmm. and the sort of vulnerableness in this man who's made himself into a very, you know, he's a businessman. He's very, like, hardened to Closed the world. Um, and it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. Um and toward the end, when she's having the Christmas party, Anna Madrigal's having the Christmas party, and she's invited him. And he, he she didn't. I think he invited himself. Did he invite himself? Yeah, they're talking, and you know, she's planning this Christmas party with her tenants. Oh, that's right. Who are like her family? Yeah. And he's like, "Aren't you going to invite me?" Yeah. And she does, and he he doesn't make it. He dies, and and she doesn't know this. Like she isn't told this, but she's. The party is getting underway. You know that feeling when you're sitting outside of a party and you can hear the hubbub, but it's quiet outside? Um, she's sitting out there waiting for him, and somebody comes out to see her. I can't remember if it's Marianne or Mona. And ask her, you know, like, mm -hmm. kind of, and she, she's, are you waiting for somebody, Mrs. Madrigal? And she says, no. You know, she's like, no, he's he's gone. And it's she said, just, like, he's already left. He's already left. 
and ooh, I mean, a funny book, but things like that that would just punch you in the gut. Um, and then the other biggest character, I think, is the character who's admittedly a bit of an autobiographical character for Maupin, Michael Mouse Tolliver. I don't, there's, there's like a little thing at the back of this copy of Tales of the City that's talking about him. And he's he said at one point, and he's probably talked differently about his work at different times of his life, but at one point he said he was more like DDMA than he was like Michael Tolliver. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I'm sure there's pieces of mm-hmm. him in everybody. But, you know, the most obvious, you know, young gay man who from the South. Um, uh, Michael is from Orlando. Um, Armistead Maupin is from North Carolina. North Carolina. This book is full of iconic moments that feel iconic. Iconic moments to me. The grocery store scene when Marianne gets to town and her friend Connie Bradshaw is like, we're going to go pick up some guys. They go cruising at the Marina Safeway. And that's how she meets Mouse. Because she basically cruises Mouse's boyfriend. You know, people are like um, meeting eyes over the the vegetables. Um, These iconic scenes are like when Michael Tolliver's parents come. They get like, they win a trip and surprise him by coming to San Francisco. And it's Halloween and he's like walking down the street with them. And all these um, men on roller skates in um, nun uh, drag (laughs) come like, Roller skating down the street, and he's and and the dad is just like, oh my god, what is this? And Mike, and they and they're go, like, they're like, they're like, hey, Tolliver, <laughs> like your jockeys, uh huh, because he'd done like a dance contest in his underwear. There's just so many <laughs> which moments she had in to this do to book, pay the rent, which he had to do to pay the rent. There's so many moments in this book that are so like iconic, like when um, Edgar and and um, Mrs. Madrigal are on the beach and they see some um, teenagers flying a kite. Uh-huh. And Edgar's like, oh, I'd love to. She offers him a joint and he's like, no, I won't do that. And then he's like, oh, like he has this moment of nostalgia and she runs off and she trades the joint for 10 minutes with the kite. I don't know. It's just full of the, he's really good at these moments um, between people. Anyway, that kind of gives people a little bit of a primer on what Tales of the City is. And there's some, other characters too that kind of come and go um like edgar's daughter dd probably not as big of a character as the other ones but she has a pretty strong storyline her husband also works at the advertising agency beecham beecham he's a real cad he's mean he's 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 the worst it's like oh maybe no He's not going to be a better person. <laughs> no. Um, and Dee Dee, um, Dee Dee Day, um, because, is, she's like a big character. And then as the series keeps going, she she's a big character. There was a lot of talk like in the documentary about how groundbreaking this, this mm-hmm. book was, especially appearing. It was a little bit of a coup because appearing in a major American newspaper, a lot of the things he was talking about, were, were, were not things that would appear in a in a major American newspaper. I mean, even now, I think it would, like... Yeah, maybe even less now. Yeah, um, yeah, maybe. No, and, and we'll just go ahead and do a major spoiler. Okay. Um, Mrs. Madrigal is trans. That was a really big deal. One of the earliest trans characters in, in American literature that's, like, not played... It's like a three-dimensional character. She's a three-dimensional character. She's not a villain. She's not played for laughs. Her her transness is not the most interesting thing about her. 
she's played even in the time and you would think this is 1976 that yeah. he's writing this even in for the time i think he handles it really really well and really really like humanely um and you could imagine him i mean there are things he'll say that date the books but surprisingly little mm-hmm. and that was a big there were people who talked in the documentary about that was a big deal to have mrs madrigal be this character who was a real person mm-hmm. Um, that wasn't the only ground that Maupin broke. And later in the series, he has an HIV positive character at a time when, you know, that wasn't appearing in mainstream American media. A lot of things like that. But those are two of the biggest ones, I think. You know, he has a character in one of the books based on Rock Hudson that's about like celebrities who aren't out. He's he's on the pulse of the the culture in a big way. But I was thinking about that again, rereading it, because I was thinking about how even a sympathetic portrayal of a trans character, I was like, oh, is it going to be cringy mm-hmm. and it really wasn't and I was like wow for writing this in the late 70s as a gay man lots of prejudiced gay men in the 70s um, he he really writes that character um, in a way that's I think he should be given a lot of credit for and I haven't finished like the whole first season of the show but Anna Magical is played by Olympia Dukakis a woman and I know there's been um, lots of conversation in in. That's a decision that I, th- I I would guess would be made differently now. Perhaps, but I'll, she you know, she does great. I think now maybe they'd hire a real trans woman to play that character. But probably a year or two years ago, they would have hired a man to dress and drag and do sure, it. Sure, sure. Which um, no, I meant a cis woman might not be the choice they would make if they... Right. And I, um, we talked about this. I totally think they should do a remake. So Netflix made this, like, reunion. It fine. It's fine. But it's a real, you know, fan service nostalgia machine. And uh, I really wish they would just do a Tales of the City, re- you know, remake. Because at the time, and they talked about this in the documentary a lot, PBS made this miniseries. It was critically acclaimed, but also extremely controversial. PBS ended up... It have been, like, early 90s. 93. 93. PBS ends up dropping it. Showtime ended up making two more seasons, but I would imagine you could make it now and make all of them. Sure. And and have a maybe even have a bigger canvas to do it. Um, and I think that would be one of the decisions that would I would imagine they would make. Although let's talk about the star power of the original yeah. Tales of the City. And I don't know, like, was it star power at the time or did Well, I think Olympia Dukakis was star power yeah. for sure. I guess retrospective star power laura a very young laura linney <laughs> yeah. is the main retrospective character retrospective star power um beecham is played by um that guy from dharma and greg mm-hmm. there's other there's lots of people lots of people are like oh that guy young yeah like really young parker posey plays connie yeah. yeah no i mean it you know it ended up being it's very well acted um i don't know the actor who plays edgar but he's really good um Laura Linney's so good at this kind of like polite deer in the headlights kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. No, and she it's so touching too. She's like friends with Armistead Mop and it sounds like has stayed very close friends with him. Mm-hmm. Um Yeah, the in that documentary, like they talk about this period of time, I think after they were, you know, a few years after the show, where he had been chosen as the um Grand Marshal of a parade, Pride Parade probably Pride Parade in San Francisco. 
and the pride parade yeah in san francisco <laughs> he and she had been like spending a lot of time together because they had both like coming out of relationships she was getting a divorce and he had ended like some long-term relationship he essentially had gotten a divorce too yeah, yeah. and they were like grieving it together and he had to go and be in this parade and so he'd asked her to come and in the documentary she's giving an interview and talking about how strange it was to be like personally very like sad and depressed but also like totally surrounded by like the joy and love of the parade Mm -hmm. and having people yell their names yeah I was struck in the documentary too the reach of these books like the variety of people that they talk to who are so influenced by them Amy Tan is in the documentary Neil Gaiman is in the documentary Ian McKellen speaks in the documentary He's like uh when I was it's no good oh it's great uh when i was on stage on this show anyways he's talking about how basically he could come out as a younger actor because armistead Mopham told him to and that he would be it would how it would be important to so many people if he did that and so he did yeah armistead Mopham is very like into the i don't know harvey milk theory of like Mm -hmm. The more people are out, the more prominent people are out, the more impact there's that's going to have on the culture. He guess I guess I didn't know this until we watched the movie, but he was the one who out, outed Rock Hudson. Yeah, and it's a very controversial part of his <laughs> career, um, calling for prominent people to come out, especially during the Lily, AIDS Lily crisis. Tomlin. Yeah, um, yeah. But it sounds like he really stands by that. No, yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't apologize for that. Um, you know he's he's a very he's an interesting character and and you know i did read logical family um that comes from his phrase you know talking about you have a biological family and then you have an opportunity you know in in your life particularly i think lgbtq people to find like your logical family and and what an interesting life he led you know he went from being very conservative sort of i think to please his father uh, you know, shaking hands with Nixon, um, working for Jesse Helms on the radio to not being conservative and coming from like a Southern family that upheld a lot of ideas about, you know, sort of Southern aristocracy and the Confederacy. And it sounds like spending a lot of time unwinding that. Later in the show, you're going to hear a very famous piece of Armistead Maupin work it's a piece of more tales of the city which is the second volume and it's called letter to mama and it's it's michael tolliver's coming out he writes it he dictates it to marianne singleton from his hospital bed he's very sick in the second book and um that was also Maupin's coming out to his parents because he knew they were reading the column and they he knew that they would know and he tells this absolutely wrenching story about doing that and about his his mother had cancer at the time and his father wrote dashed off a note that sort of said any additional stress will kill her quicker, not nice. Mm-hmm. And so that was it. I think that was all the acknowledgement he got. But but then later in his life when his father was dying, he and his husband went and visited him and he was really like worried about it. And his dad, I, I mean, he must have had like a change of heart or a change of mind because he said that he loved him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he told his partner, his husband, to mm-hmm. take care of him. No, that was a long arc. I think his dad was like 90-something. It was a long, long arc. So I read, Becky read Tales of the City. I reread Tales of the City, and then I got part of the way through the second volume, More Tales of the City. (laughs) The third volume is called Further Tales of the City, and then he switches, and then it's Baby Cakes, 
significant list. others, sure of you. And then it goes to those three novels. Um, Michael Tolliver lives. Uh-huh. Marianne in Autumn. Uh-huh. And, and then, then the days of Anna Madrigal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, uh, another thing that Armiston Maupin does really well is he'll do something. You'll kind of be reading the book and you'll be like, he's not going to do that. That's outrageous. And he does. And it is outrageous. But also he's so good at the intimate details that it works. Like you believe it. Um, so to just give you like sort of a general plot a synopsis of more tales of the city edgar halcyon has died he left some money to marianne and marianne and michael go on a cruise to mexico where she falls in love with an uh amnesiac who lost his memory in some kind of a cult situation uh, Mona goes to Winnemucca, Nevada to investigate her roots. Mm. Um, what else happens? There's a bunch of crazy stuff that happens. Yeah, they're all like on trips. Yeah, everybody's on everybody's on trips. And not the kind of trips from the first book. No, no. <laughs> no, but he's not afraid to take them on outrageous journeys. Yeah. And he pulls it off. I guess that's the thing. I always think if you're a good enough writer, you can do whatever you want. So he pulls it off. He pulls it off. I also think, too, sometimes when you have, like, a story that's so grounded in, like, characters that feel really real, they can do, like, you know, crazy things or get into crazy situations and it never feels too, you know, outlandish. Yeah. No. I, that's, I like how you said that. That's really true. One of the most, I think, affecting storylines in the book, though, there's a part kind of in the middle of the book where Michael gets really sick. It's not HIV. That's later in the series. This is before HIV was on, really known about. He gets like Guillain-Barre and, he, and he's like partially paralyzed and he's in the hospital bed. So everybody's going about their adventures, but like really worried about Michael. And that's when Michael dictates that letter um, to his mother because she's gotten really involved in the Save Our Children campaign, which is a real thing that was happening at the time. Anita Bryant, who was sort of like a b-list celebrity character had started this real homophobic campaign in florida she had like gotten famous you know she was doing like orange juice commercials and stuff um but very famous very venomous um character the one thing that really stuck out to me in in this book that's kind of like that light and dark on the same page as that chapter. So Marianne gets this, she volunteers at like a crisis hotline and her, I don't know, co-worker, you know, her supervisor almost kind of is, um, his name is Vincent and he is depressed and has a lot of tragedies in his background and has really suffered a lot and has cut off an ear, which I look like that's the Vincent's kind of like a joke, but it's really sad too. And a finger right when she starts with him and she's, of course, like worried about him and stuff. He talks about his old lady had left him because they, she was really into the um, anti-war movement when the war ended she just couldn't handle it she didn't know <laughs> she didn't know what to do with herself uh, she tried these other causes and then ended up joining the Israeli army <laughs> which is like that's you know that's yeah. good satire right but like this chapter he's going on about pretty like deep satire about like activism and hippies and he feels like the last hippie alive and then like it's like two or three pages of kind of you know humor and satire and then you kind of realize like it's 
it's not going to end well for him. And by the end of the chapter, he's killed himself. Yeah. The mood changes so much in, the, in yeah. terms of it. And not a long chapter either. No. And then I was like, what? And it ends. Yeah. It's interesting how he's able to to treat certain things both really lightly and like also seriously at the same time. Yeah. It's like what I mentioned earlier. He really can operate on a, on a number of levels, which I, which is probably why these books have lasted like they have. Cause you mm-hmm. could imagine like maybe a lesser writer doing, you know, satire of the seventies and stuff like that. That would just be like ephemera that wouldn't mm-hmm. last. And this lasts, you read this today and it both, it, it gives you that glimpse of that time, but, these people are so vivid yeah. are, do you think becky that you'll do you think well you, you have so much stuff to read i know but do you think you would of your own volition do you think you would continue this series yes it's pretty addictive isn't it well because i was like before i finished i was like oh i think this about this character is that is that what's gonna happen and you're like well i don't know and i thought i'd know by the end of this book and i don't so it makes me want to like read the next book and see, figure it out. I really want to continue with the series is I know it goes over nine books and I'm a really big fan of like being able to be in whether it's TV or literature with a group of characters over a long span of time and get that sort of intimacy. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And I think I'd want to keep reading it because I, it's like a sitcom, but it's a book. And I really love sitcoms. And I think it'd be nice to have something, too, where it's like, you know, the characters, you can just kind of pop by sometimes, you know? Yeah. Put yeah. it on. Stopping at Barbary Lane. Yeah. Barbary Lane. Yeah. yeah. People do. We sometimes. Do you, are... what other um, literary addresses do you know? Oh. I know like 300 Fox Way. That's where Blue Sergeant and her family live and oh, the Raven Boys. I don't know a lot. I know, isn't there a Sherlock Holmes address? Baker Street, mm-hmm. something, something Baker Street. Um, Privet Drive. Oh, yeah. I guess I don't know that many. <laughs> I just seems like there are some. I know there's certainly like places. Yeah. You know? So a good experience? Yeah. Good, yeah. good. So next month. So next month July. is July, and we are reading the work of Louise Erdrich, who oh is one of my top hmm, top five for sure favorite authors. This is going to be exciting. I haven't read her latest yet, so that'll be on yeah, my list. Yeah, me neither. And I got like a lot of um, of different editions of her books for Christmas that I haven't read, so I'm excited. Yeah, that's going to be a lot of fun. It'll be hard to choose. You know, yours like, oh, I'm going to read them all. Yeah, I always start ambitious and then simplify. <laughs> but I uh, want to remind everybody at home, it's not too late to hop in and do the challenge. Um, you can do it at your own pace. You can do it in, in the order that strikes you. Um, you can um, log the activities for the podcast challenge and also log your days of reading for the summer challenge and yeah. be learning prizes yeah and we will have a prize drawing for our r shelf challenge at the end of the year beginning of 2023 so get in the get in the running there and it's fun mm-hmm. yeah reading is fun you guys <laughs> all right you ready becky i'm ready thanks everybody for listening to your shelf or mine i'm becky i'm austin bye-bye bye-bye Support for Your Shelf or Mine comes from the Friends of the Longview Public Library, 
the Longview Library Foundation, and listeners like you. Your Shelf or Mind jingle is written and performed by Megan McKeldery from A Song for You. Find Megan online at ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldery. That's M-E-A-G-H-A-N-M-C-E-L-D-E-R-R-Y. ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldery. Letter to Mama. Dear Mama, I'm sorry it's taken me so long to write. Every time I try to write to you and Papa, I realize I'm not saying the things that are in my heart. That would be okay if I loved you any less than I do, but you are still my parents and I am still your child. I have friends who think I'm foolish to write this letter. I hope they're wrong. I hope their doubts are based on parents who loved and trusted them less than mine do. I hope especially that you'll see this as an act of love on my part, a sign of my continuing need to share my life with you. I wouldn't have written, I guess, if you hadn't told me about your involvement in the Save Our Children campaign. That, more than anything, made it clear that my responsibility was to tell you the truth, that your own child is homosexual, and that I never needed saving from anything except the cruel and ignorant piety of people like Anita Bryant. I'm sorry, Mama. Not for what I am, but for how you must feel at this moment. I know what that feeling is, for I felt it for most of my life. Revulsion, shame, disbelief, rejection through fear of something I knew, even as a child, was as basic to my nature as the color of my eyes. No, Mama, I wasn't recruited. No seasoned homosexual ever served as my mentor. But you know what? I wish someone had. I wish someone older than me and wiser than the people in Orlando had taken me aside and said, You're all right, kid. You can grow up to be a doctor or a teacher just like anyone else. You're not crazy or sick or evil. You can succeed and be happy and find peace with friends, all kinds of friends who don't give a damn who you go to bed with. Most of all, though, you can love and be loved without hating yourself for it. But no one ever said that to me, Mama. I had to find it out on my own with the help of the city that has become my home. I know this may be hard for you to believe, but San Francisco is full of men and women, both gay and straight, who don't consider sexuality in measuring the worth of another human being. These aren't radicals or weirdos, Mama. They are shop clerks and bankers and little old ladies and people who nod and smile to you when you meet them on the bus. Their attitude is neither patronizing nor pitying, and their message is so simple. Yes, you are a person. Yes, I like you. Yes, it's all right for you to like me too. I know what you must be thinking now. You're asking yourself, what did we do wrong? How did we let this happen? Which one of us made him that way? I can't answer that, Mama. In the long run, I guess I really don't care. All I know is this. If you and Papa are responsible for the way I am, then I thank you with all my heart, for it's the light and the joy of my life. I know I can't tell you what it is to be gay, but I can tell you what it's not. It's not hiding behind words, Mama, like family and decency and Christianity. It's not fearing your body or the pleasures that God made for it. It's not judging your neighbor, except when he's crass or unkind. Being gay has taught me tolerance, compassion, and humility. It has shown me the limitless possibilities of living. It has given me people whose passion and kindness and sensitivity have provided a constant source of strength. It has brought me into the family of man, Mama and I like it here. I like it. There's not much else I can say except that I'm the same Michael you've always known, 
You just know me better now. I have never consciously done anything to hurt you. I never will. Please don't feel you have to answer this right away. It's enough for me to know that I no longer have to lie to the people who taught me to value the truth. Marianne sends her love. Everything is fine at 28 Barbary Lane. Your loving son, Michael.